0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is former manager of The Police and IRS Records founder, Miles Copeland. But first of all, if you're a YouTube creator and have a YouTube channel, you probably got an email just this past week from YouTube. What was inside was their new terms of service. And buried in the middle was something that said guess what? We're now going to put ads on every single video, whether you want that to happen or not. Now, up until this time, there's only two ways that a video could be monetized. Either you became part of the YouTube Partner Program, and what that meant is you had at least 4,000 viewer minutes in the last year, 1,000 channel subscribers, no copyright strikes, and an AdSense account. And then what would happen is you would be able to monetize a video or not. The other way, of course, is if you happen to use some copywritten material and the copyright owner found out, they could then place an ad on your video whether you wanted that to happen or not. Well, now guess what? Every video is going to have ads on it. For many YouTube channel owners, many YouTube creators, They feel that they don't want advertising because it deteriorates the user experience. That may be true, but the fact of the matter is, now it's going to be on every single video, whether you like it or not. Now, why did YouTube do this? Well, the biggest reason is their ad rates are down about 50% since the beginning of the pandemic. So this is a way for them to make up the revenue by simply having more ads. The other thing is it does force people to subscribe because now it's easier to pay $9.99 a month and have no ads at all than it is to see the ads all the time. So we'll see how that works. Either way, you're better off to actually sign up for the partner program and at least make a little bit of money rather than having YouTube take it all. (laughs) If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at Courses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, if you're a Mac user, you've probably noticed that in the last week, Apple has come out with its brand new computers featuring what they call the M1 Silicon chip. This is a system on a chip, which makes everything a lot more efficient, and therefore a whole lot faster. I just ordered one of these, but it won't arrive for at least a few weeks, but I'll give you a full report when it does come in. In the meantime, if you've really looked at the specs, you saw that it includes several Thunderbolt Four ports. And you may think, wait a second, what is this Thunderbolt for? Well, if you've been a Mac user for a while, you don't have to worry so much about it because all it meant is Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4 are pretty much the same in that the entire feature set of Thunderbolt is included. However, if you're a PC user, this does make a difference because up until now, PCs were only using a little bit of the feature set of Thunderbolt. So you were never exactly sure if you're going to be able to get everything that's involved with it. Now Thunderbolt of course has a high speed but it also allows you to chain multiple Thunderbolt peripherals together as well as a number of displays. What Thunderbolt 4 really means is the entire feature set is being used. So for a Mac user, Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4, pretty much the same thing. For a PC user, Thunderbolt 4 means now you get the full package as opposed to before when you didn't. Oh, but there is one more thing that you do get with Thunderbolt 4, and this is for Mac users as well. Up until now, one of the big problems and big complaints about Thunderbolt is there were no hubs. So you weren't able to expand your ports at all. This has now changed with Thunderbolt 4 because with the brand new operating system, OS 11 Big Sur, you're now able to incorporate a Thunderbolt hub as well, expanding all your ports. So that's a cool thing with Thunderbolt 4, so look for it on your next computer. My guest this week is Miles Copeland, who managed the police and created IRS records. IRS was at the forefront of punk and New Wave as the home of bands like R.E.M., The Bangles, Dead Kennedys, The Go-Go's, and many others. He also managed Sting in his solo music and film careers. The son of one of the founders of the CIA and a mother who worked for British intelligence, Miles and his brothers grew up in the Middle East, which greatly influenced his openness to new music. He now owns and operates Copeland International Arts, which features musical styles from all over the world, including the Middle East, world music. Irish, tango, flamenco, and Polynesian. In part one of the interview, we talked about Miles growing up in Egypt and Lebanon, getting involved with the upstart punk scene in London, behind the scenes at IRS Records, hearing the police's Roxanne for the first time, and much more. I spoke with Miles via phone from his home in Los Angeles. Were you aware of what your parents did for a living?
1: Well, remember the the when we, when I first went to the Middle East, I was what age four or something, age, a, and I left when I was age six. So at the time, my father was the station chief, the CIA station chief in Damascus, and at the time there wasn't even an embassy there. They had it was one step below an embassy. It was called a legation, and he was he was the cultural attaché, which was his cover. But the reality was that the and people always imagine that the CIA is some sort of you know secretive uh, thing and that uh, everybody that works for the CIA is some sort of spy or something, but that really isn't the case. The generals knew my father was working for the U.S. government, um, and that to them was an advantage because it, a lot of these governments want the U.S. government to know what they're doing and what they're up to because they they don't want the U.S. government to make a mistake. You know, so when when my father was in Cairo, for instance, Abdel Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, knew he was CIA, was, and actually had requested the CIA to send an intelligence officer who could help him design his own CIA, and that was my father. So the local governments knew that he was actually um, a CIA operative. Not everybody in the co- country knew, obviously, and... But uh certainly, the people that needed to know in in the Syrian government and later in the Egyptian government they, they did know that he was CIA. So I, as a kid, didn't really know what he did until I was probably twelve or thirteen, and uh, you know, by which time I knew he was something important in in uh, the US government because at our house in Cairo, for instance, the President of Egypt would come and visit every now and then. Hmm. So you know, if the president of the country comes to visit you, then obviously your father must be somebody important. Although I was told at the time that he was uh, helping the Egyptian cotton industry sort itself out, but it did expose me to a lot of the sort of the, the issues that that he was dealing with, and that, that that well, actually, the leadership in the country was dealing with. <laughs> Excuse me. The the I remember very vividly my father saying to me once that. The vice president of Egypt, who at that time was called Zachary Mahadeen, had complained that his people didn't want enough. And that might sound strange, but it, it was what he was saying was that when they increased wages, absenteeism went up. Because the average Egyptian was thinking, well, if it takes me you know 20 pounds to live for a week, and I have to work five days to get the 20 pounds, I'll work five days. So if they raised his salary so that he could now earn that same 20 pounds in four days, he figured, well, I'm not going to show up the fifth day because I don't need that 20 pounds. So, you know, in America and the, the West, we always imagine, you know, you increase wages, you'll get more out of the people and all that. Well, in Egypt, it was absolutely the, the, the opposite was the problem, you know. So I was dealing with certain things like that that I sort of learned at a young age that, you know, what we imagine happens in the West doesn't necessarily happen in some of these other countries
0: well you were young as you said did the music make any impression on you
1: well at the time you know as an american you're very conscious i think maybe even more so than if you're an american growing up in you know des moines iowa or something okay you're where everybody around you is an american okay they may be a different color than you, or they may be a different—you know—they come from a different background than you. But basically, they're all American. Okay. When you're growing up in Egypt or Lebanon or Syria or some other country over there, you're very aware that you're an American, and therefore you're different than everybody, almost everybody you see around you. So I think probably the the um, what affected me most uh, was you know, I was exposed, for instance, to Arabic music, but I didn't really think a lot about it because I was an American kid. So I was interested in, you know, Elvis Presley and, and, uh, you know, Little Richard and, you know, the Big Bopper and all those sort of, you know, bands that were coming along, you know, the Holly, the, the Buddy, Buddy Holly and, and whatever, you know, and then later on, of course, it was the Beatles and whatever, you know. So I think growing up overseas, you, you, as an american you probably gravitate more to your country's music than you would necessarily do if you were if you were uh, growing up in you know closer to america and unless you were weren't exposed to it you know but but uh, i did i must have subliminally heard arabic music every time i got into a taxi or i was walking down the street you know so it was there in my head but i was not something i mean i wasn't going and buying arabic music when i was when i was young it wasn't until I was in college um, in at the American University doing my MA degree in Beirut that I actually went to a couple of concerts where they were Arabic artists and the reason I did that was because my best friend was the ambassador uh, the son of the Egyptian ambassador and he was always invited to see fairuz or one of Sabah or one of the famous Lebanese singers, and uh, I would tag along and I'd say, what the hell, you know, and so I would go off to one of these sites and I'd listen to a concert, but I never really thought a lot about it at the time, but I did get exposed to the music then, you know, Um, but I wasn't really an avid fan until much, much later.
0: Well, I want to get into that, but let's go back first. How did you get into the music business?
1: Well, (laughs) sort of a long, convoluted story, but (laughs) It was basically, here I was in, in doing my MA degree at the American University of Beirut and my youngest brother Stuart who later on became the drummer of the police shows up and he for some reason got into drums and uh, he came to visit me with my mother in, in Christmas of 67 uh, 1967 uh, and uh, the local American group at the at the high school got themselves a gig at the university and their drummer had gone home for Christmas so they were drummerless so they asked Stuart if he could sit in with them and of course Stewart invited me to see the show and I went with my friend who was the Eu ambassador's son we went to see this little group playing in this little nightclub thing where they they got a gig you know and there was my little brother playing drums up there and so something must have Hit me, you know, and um, the, the idea that you know maybe I could be closer to music, other than just sort of a fan buying the records, you know. Well, a number of months went by, and that group came to see me again. This time, their drummer had returned, and my brother Stuart had gone back to London, and they came and see me, and they said, "Look, they got a gig at the university, and and they wanted to do something special, and would I help them?" And I said, "Well, what the hell, you know?" So I did, and. uh... I had I had some black lights and some fluorescent paint and whatever and we said well let's let's do what we've been reading about in, in the papers about you know this psychedelic you know psychedelic stuff that's happening in San Francisco let's do a psychedelic event at the university well of course I had no idea what that meant and either today really but uh, we passed around you know the fluorescent paint and next thing we knew it, the kids all got crazy and. It was a lot of fun, and then the group said, "Well, we want you to help us at every other gig we do." You know, and then a uh, Lebanese promoter—how he heard about me, I have no idea. But I guess he heard about this concert, and he came to see me and said, "Well, I'm bringing a British group, but you come and help me and uh, put on a show." You know, and so I said, "Well, what the hell?" And next thing I knew, this British group arrives, and they're playing in one of the hotels in the mountain during the summer. And uh, I was helping them out, and it turned out to be a group called Rupert's People. And uh, this was in 69, and then when I finally graduated, I went to London, and when I went through London, they came to see me and said, well, we want you to be our manager. I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea about music, you know. And I I was in Beirut, for Christ's sake. You know, what do I know about their record business or the music business? They said, well, you know, you helped us out, and we think you're the right kind of mentality, and you should do it. So, uh, well, I, to cut kind a of long story short, I said yes. But, of course, there was a little bit of an interim, because I got drafted, reported for duty in Virginia, and was one of 2,000 who got rejected, and <laughs> flew back to London, and uh, went in the music business. So it was literally a, kind of a fluke, you know.
0: Did you go a promotion or as a manager? A manager. Ah.
1: I went in and I was managing Rupert's people, but uh, I said, look, guys, I really know nothing about the music business, so I need you guys to help me, you know, educate me as to what it's all about. So their their their, their uh, idea was, well, they'll take me around to some clubs and I'll meet, you know, promoters of the the clubs and I'll see what the scene is, basically, you know. And when I went to this club that was not near you was fairly near the residence I was staying with my parents in London, I met a group which became Wishbone Ash, which was the first group I really managed because the Ruperts People guys all had jobs and they weren't really gonna quit their job unless they had something definite and I was what did I know, you know. Whereas Wishbone were were they were already a professional group trying to make it happen and all they needed was some help getting a guitar player because their guitar player quit. And I said, well, I'll help you. And they became my first official management group. So, you know, basically, it was a, it was something I'd never planned. I'd never thought about being a manager, you know, until Rupert's people came to see me in London in 1969 and said, well, we think you should be a manager. And I had nothing else to do, and... You know, I, I thought I was going to be in the Army for two years, so I had no plans. So I, it was basically, a, all right, what the hell? Why not? You know, and, and next thing I knew, I was in the music business.
0: Okay, so you're managing, and then you get into the record business as a label. What brought that on?
1: Well, that happened a little later on, obviously. You know, well, I mean, one of the things that happens when you're in the music business in one form, you, you tend to you grow in you know, one of the first things you learn is, you know, a group wants to get a record deal. So you make a record deal. and Then they want to tour the USA. If they're a British group, they want to tour the USA. And so you start doing tours. And, uh, you know, so one thing tends to lead to another, leads to another. There have been a lot of managers who have ended up running record labels. You know, the road managers become managers, become managers, become record label heads, and, you know, down the line. So you know, it's something where you kind of gravitate towards it. So at one point, I was managing groups, and of course, I was trying to get them record deals. And it became obvious that, well, if you, it's much easier to get a record deal if you're also the record company. So, you know, once you've got a bit of some credibility and you've got a couple of successful groups or something, you can go to a label and say, well, I want to start a record label, and, and uh, you know, they'll be interested in you because you're you seem to have know what you're doing, and maybe you can bring some acts in. And so I made a record deal with, with RCA in the beginning, and and ended up, you know, later on with A&M, you know, when I started IRS Records. But basically, I think in the music business, you, you sort of start at one end, and you could end up in another end. You know, I mean, I've seen road managers that become managers. I've seen people who are publicists become record company heads. I've seen, you know, it it's it, it's something where... There is no actual training that you go to. You don't go to college to learn how to be in the record business. So, you know the record labels are looking for people who seem to seem to have their finger on the pulse, and you know this publicist seems like he knows what he's doing, or this manager or this agent, whatever. And uh, you know, so if you have a, if you decide, well, you know, getting a record company is a good way to get your acts recorded. Well, that seems to be an obvious way to go.
0: Let's jump ahead to IRS. Did you form IRS specifically for the police?
1: No. IRS, what actually happened was, I I did a major tour in England in 1975. It was kind of like Lollapalooza before Lollapalooza was invented. It was a a festival tour. Because I had acts that were very good live, but they never really had hit records. So I figured the best way to make acts happen would be to let people see them live and build the build their base that way. And so I created this sort of a moving festival tour. Well, it was a financial nightmare. And I ended up basically losing everything. I lost, I mean, I almost went bankrupt. And um, what all, the only thing that kept me from being bankrupt was going to everybody and saying, look, if you bankrupt me, I'll pay, you know, you're going to get nothing. But if you give me a couple of years, I'll pay you half of what I owe you. You know, And uh, I won't go bankrupt. And everybody agreed. So it just so happened that at the same time as I was going through this horrible financial situation where I was literally every act that I was working with pretty much left because I had no money anymore but the punks were happening and of course nobody paid attention to them so the fact fact is they didn't have money either and they were they were interested in somebody paying attention to them and I had no money and nobody was paying attention to me either but I knew the business by that time, you know, and so I kind of gravitated to work with some of these punk bands. And of course it was the time of sniffing glue, the little fanzine. And then, you know, you could, you could put out your little single and there was, people would buy the singles. So I started making singles. I did the police single. I did the, you know, the various, various groups I was working with and I was putting these little singles out. So I started a record label a whole bunch of record labels in England, really, which were little independent labels, you know, and it was really fly by the seat of your pants, you know. And it, it, well, I had intended to record the Police, and actually, it, it made a deal with a with a studio that they said, "Look, for a thousand pounds, we'll give you a month in the studio." So I decided that, you know, what, what the hell, I'll I'll record the Police, and. Um, when I went into the studio and I heard Roxanne, I realized that, you know, this was something special and even though the group didn't recognize the song as being special, I did and I said, "Guys, this is a classic and it's bigger than I can handle and I'm going to take it to AM Records." It was a, you know, company that I had, had got to know because I had signed Squeeze there. And uh I took the record to them and and um, made a deal and uh that started the ball rolling with the police. And eventually um the um a and M Records um in America got behind the band and and I mean as history knows the police became a you know pretty big pretty happening group, you know. And as they were happening in America, I started having a lot of these bands that I was working with in England sort of saying to me, Well, you know, well what about us, Moles, you know? You've got, you got a blues happening, and uh, what about us? We want to go to America, too, you know? And so <laughs> I had these groups wanting to get their records out, and I was thinking, well, you know, if I go to Jerry Moss with, uh, with Chelsea and with uh, some of these, you know, the cramps and some of these other wild groups I was kind of working with, he's going to look at me like i got two heads, you know? So I went to Jerry Moss, and I said, look, Jerry, here's, here's the deal. You know, we're, we're doing pretty well with the police, okay? And and I've got a lot of these other bands, too, that I was working with, you know, with the police back in England, and they want to get their records out in America, too. But, you know, so, so let, let me give you a proposal. You give me a record label, okay? And you can decide, you can let your people decide how many records they press they can they can go to the market they could advise you, look you know only press one copy or you know press a 20,000 copy whatever the number is. you guys decide it's in your control, okay and I don't need your money, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you those records for free, okay but you have to put everyone out so you have to go to everyone at your you have to go to your salespeople and they have to go out to the marketplace to see what they can sell okay wow. but I'm not going to ask for your money. And at the time, of course, I already had a lot of these records recorded, so I didn't need the money. And also, there were a lot of British acts like the Buzzcocks and whatever who couldn't get a record deal in America. So if I went to them and I said, Guys, I'll put your record out in America, but I'm not going to pay you in advance, or I'll pay you a very small advance, most of them went and said, Well, if I get a record out in America, you know, let's do it, you know. So I managed to sign the Buzzcocks, I think, for $20,000 or something, you know. Wow. A lot of other bands like, I got perf- next to free, you know. So Jerry says, well, sure, I'll give you a label, but uh, let me listen to the records. And I said, ah, <laughs> that's the that's the one thing you can't do. I'm not going to let you listen to the music because I knew if he listened, he would say, well, forget it. You know, because <laughs> Jerry Boss listening to the Cramps or, yeah. you know, yeah. Chelsea or uh, the models or, you know, Cortina's, whatever, he's going to look at me like I'm crazy, you know. So he said, well, okay, what the hell, you know. And I think for him... The, the hook was that, well, I didn't need his money. he could His people could decide what they were going to press up, so they weren't going to press up records that they didn't think they could sell. So it, the risk for him was pretty negligible, you know. And that was really the hook that led him made him say yes. You know, and that was sort of a lesson that I learned. It was the same lesson I learned with the police, is if you make it easy for somebody to say yes, likelihood is you're going to get yes as an answer, you know. Because remember, I, I had offered the police to ANM in London, and I, my pitch to them was, look, I can't, I have nothing to recommend this band. There's no press, there's no tour, there's nothing, but the music's great. So here's the deal, it's yours, the record's yours, cost you nothing. Just put it out, and uh, and at that, and that now listen to the record, and the A and R guy, you know, was probably listening to the record, and now he, all those normal things that have, that are into somebody's mind like you know, what's this going to cost me? You know, what's my boss going to say? Suppose it's a, it's a dud. Is it going to eat up my budget that I've been given this year to be able to sign bands? If it's all the sort of things that are going to operate into somebody's head in terms of signing an act, if that's all eliminated, where the only thing left is the music, then I think that's probably the only record that guy ever listened to, that he was only listening to the music. And he, he liked the music, you know, what's not to like? you yeah. It was the police, you know. So I said, "Look, it's yours. You don't have to negotiate. Just give me the highest royalty that A and M pays. Record's yours. Done. Deal's ready. It's yours, you know." And so he went up to his boss and said, "Look, I got this free record, and it's pretty good. And what the hell?" So that's how I got the police deal, you know. If I'd asked for money, I'm pretty sure he would have said no, you know. Well, the same goes for Jerry Moss and IRS Records. If I had asked for money, I think Jerry would have wisely said, "Well." No, you know, because I got to take his hard-earned money that he earned from the carpenters or Peter Frampton or whoever, and he was not going to give it to me to put into these nutty groups, you know. At least he would have thought they were nutty groups. I didn't, but he did. So that's how IRS started. It was basically uh, under pressure from the British groups to get their records out in America, and. You know, as of course, when you when you start a label, you know the first thing that happens is other people start coming to you, and you start looking at American acts. And I quickly discovered that American acts couldn't get record deals in it either. You know, I mean, the Go Go's couldn't get a record deal, for
0: instance. Mm, yeah.
1: Um. So, all of us, you know, the Osiris grew. We began to pick up American acts as well: Wall of Voodoo, um, Oingo Boingo, Boingo. You know, one after another, you know, and, and of course, a lot of British acts. So the label was, was, you know, the, the start of it really was in England and it was, uh, it was an offshoot of England, but it became, you know, once, once the Go-Go's went to number one, IRS became, you know, the happening label of probably of the eighties, you know, and uh, with the Go-Go's going to number one, it was actually the biggest selling album of the year in the country, which was, you know, a hell of a thing. And of course, it was the first time an all-girl group had ever had a number one record in America. You'd had number one al- singles, you know, the Supremes and whatever, but no girl group had ever had a number one album. So we were the first. And, of course, you know, it was our number one as well And uh, at IRS Records, and so it really put the label on the map.
0: I'm curious, Miles, when you first brought that deal to a and M, A and m uh, America, Jerry Moss, who was responsible for the marketing at that point?
1: Uh, and M was. But I, I had uh, the, the, when I had uh, went to the company, I, I figured I had already had some experience with them. I had had squeezed touring America once and met some of some of the representatives in, in the company. And the ones that were really keen were the young un, unpaid college reps, what they called. they had like 20 28 college reps around the country it was it was sort of an intern program where you had these young kids who wanted to enter the record business and they they made it they a and m had this sort of college department and I think they might have paid them you know free records and a little you know a little bit of twenty bucks here twenty bucks there or something but basically they were unpaid and I figured well, those are guys are young, they're into what I'm doing, and that's a like free marketing team you know they'll they'll go not, i mean i I was hoping to get on college through radio stations you know. I was hoping to get, you know, the little independent record stores and places where if you weren't a big honcho in a record business, you know, you you probably wouldn't go to those places anyway, you know. It would be the college kids that would do it. So I thought A&M had this great operation already that would help me, you know. And some of their people were kind of intrigued with the whole punk thing, and they'd seen the police doing well, and they, thought they were thinking, well, you know, maybe some of these other things might do something, you know. But most people wrote it off and thought it was pretty... Pretty minimal, you know. But uh, I, I think about a month after I'd done the a and deal, uh, A&M closed the college department. So I lost all of those kids that I thought was going to be helping me. So I decided i better hire a couple of them. And I hired a guy named Jay Boberg here in L.A. And I hired a girl in, um, in New York, uh who had been the local rep in New York and a couple others you know that I I had sort of met on the road but of course I had no money so I my deal with Jay was look Jay I I don't have any money to give you um, so I'm going to pay you 100 bucks a week and uh, but I'll make you vice president of the label <laughs> <laughs> so here's this college kid who you know was still in college and you know 100 bucks a week I mean if it was a real job he would have taken it you know and But the reality is if he had asked me for a, you know, $50,000 a year salary or something, I would have said, well, sorry, I can't afford you. Goodbye, you know. But he accepted it. But I think the hook was that I offered him vice president, you know, to be vice president of a record label at age 20, you know, or 21, whatever. I think it was enough of a hook that he thought, well, how bad could it be? And I think he believed in the music and, you know, as did some of the other people I was working with. So... I basically started the label on a shoestring mainly cuz I could and of course nobody was paying attention to the music so um everybody thought it was a joke I mean I people were I think Billboard actually had an article after a week or two after the label started saying punk is dead in America you know so it was a, it was a situation where you know nobody was taking it very seriously, and, and I didn't make it hard for them to, to, to enter the business because I said, well, it's free, you know, and so people said, yeah, you
0: know. Miles, where's the turning point on that in terms of the acceptance of punk?
1: I don't think it really was until the Go-Go's happened, which was a couple of years later. I mean, pe- people don't, a lot of people don't know this, but after the first year of IRS records, Jerry Moss called me into his office. And he said, "Miles, uh, you've been doing this for a year. You put out eight records. None of them been a, been a hit. Uh, so let's just close the label. It was over." Wow. And 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 I said, "Well, Jerry, um, did you make money in the year?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I made money, but you know, it was nothing to write home about. You know, I mean, what was it, twenty, thirty thousand dollar profit or something? Okay, which to an A and M at that time was a joke, you know." Yeah. Well, any any major label, $20,000 would have been, you know, dropping a bucket, you know. And I said, yes, but how many times in your career have you made money in the first year of doing a project? And he said, well, I, probably never. And I said, well, you did with me. He said, well, you're right, you know. And uh, so I, I basically talked him into giving me one more year, you know. And I said, look, Jerry, give me another year. And uh, he did. He says, okay, what the hell? Because, again, it was a situation where it was costing him no money. You know he, he I was not pressuring him to saying, "Why aren't you putting this record? Why aren't you doing that? Why don't you you know, it was pretty easy, you know. Well, by the end, by, you know, somewhere along in that second year, of course, the police exploded in England. They became the biggest group in the world outside the United States. I mean, the record, the second album in England, the first album didn't really do very much, okay. Second album went straight to number one. We had three number one singles. It went to number one in a hall, number one. It was huge. It was a mega group around the world, okay? And so, you know, you're selling millions of albums, and I think by, you know, deep into the second year, I, as a manager, the police, you know, Squeeze was doing pretty well, and, and, and it was like, well, you know, IRS is not really costing us any money, and so, and the police are doing so well and whatever, you know, so the second year came by, came and went. Jerry Moss never called me into his office, so I I wasn't going to go knock at his door and say, oh, "By the way, Jerry, uh, the year's up. What are you going to do?" You know. So, so it was in beginning of the third year that the Go Go's records, you know, I, I signed the Go Go's, and their records started taking off, and and within that third that third year, the Go Go's record went to number one, and. Everybody then woke up and said, "Well, wait a minute, maybe something really is going on here." And I think that was the time, really, that that, that IRS, as a record company, started. You know, people were taking it seriously because remember the Go Go's, uh, aside from the fact that there was every label rejected them because they were girls, they didn't really look upon IRS as a as a big deal because you know we were a Mickey Mouse label that never had a hit, you know. But we were the only game in town and so they signed to us and uh you know, I know when I when I signed them where I was I, I went to the manager and said, Look, let's let's make a deal, she said, Great, okay. She then went off to a bunch of the record labels again and saying, Okay, IRS has made us a deal. Do you want to get in? And of course every label still rejected her. So she gets a meeting with a group and says, Look, there's only one person who's interested and it's this Miles Copeland crazy guy at IRS Records and uh that's the only deal there. What do you want to do? And the girl said, well, let's do it. And luckily for me and for them, we did it. And uh, the Go-Go's went out on IRS records and inch by inch, it climbed the charts. And we had this young college kid who had a just, I had just hired to join the company a few months back, who was, again, one of the college reps. His name was Michael Plen. And he was this little bulldog that would just not say, take no for an answer. He used to call himself the the attack hamster. <laughs> I think he would he would go to record labels, or sorry, he would go to record um, radio stations, and he would say, "Look, I'm not going to leave leave here until you agree to play the record." Uh, I'm convinced that a lot of those radio stations they, they agreed to play the Go Go's just to get Michael Plen out of their out of their place, you know. And they kept playing it to keep it from coming back. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was one of these, these stories where, you know, when I look back at IRS and I said, what was really the ingredient that made the record happen? Well, of course, it was the music, you know. Uh, it was the work that I was doing and Jay and to keep people in the company. But the real guy that was just just this hound dog, this guy that was push, 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 was Michael Plan, who took that Google's record to number one. Because when that went to number one, everybody woke up and went, oh my God, you know, this punk stuff, it's real, you know, biggest record of the year, you know, girls can play, Uh, you know, so the next thing we know, we were, we were the happening label in America.
0: You can hear part two of my interview with Miles Copeland on the podcast next week. You can also find out more about Miles at milescopeland.com. It's milescopeland, all one word, .com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, to listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean